Well, good morning. We feeling okay today? Uh, if I ever get elected president, my first uh, order of business is just going to be getting rid of this whole stupid daylight saving things. Well, why do we do that? I mean, what's going on with that? Especially, like, I never really cared that much, but now that I have kids, it's not fun at all. It's, it's a pretty miserable experience, honestly, especially when you're springing forward here and losing time. But anyway, uh, we are so glad that you are here today, honestly, uh, especially if this is your first time here. We just want to say welcome. Seriously, thank you for making uh, Grumlaw part of your week. We know that walking into a new place can feel risky. It can certainly feel intimidating, and so we certainly don't take that for granted. Uh, so seriously, thank you so much for showing up here today. Um, today is an exciting morning. Um, and I want to commend you, if it is your first time, uh, you are, have impeccable timing. You are catching us right at the beginning of this brand new series that we are calling uh, Elijah. Um, Elijah is a character that we find uh, in the Old Testament. I'm excited for this series because this will be the first time in, in our history. Now, granted, just about everything that we do is like the first time in our history because we're a whopping nine weeks old. But all that being said, it's the first time in our history where we're going to take a look at specifically just one character in the Bible and specifically an Old Testament character. Now, it's occurred to me that the Old Testament kind of has this way of, of being ignored. We tend to focus a little bit more on the New Testament, and maybe rightfully so. I kind of get that, right? The New Testament talks about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, and Jesus might have played a slight role in this whole Christianity thing. However, that does not mean that we necessarily should uh, ignore the Old Testament uh, altogether. Now, I'd like to share this with you, and, and I think this is worth noting, and I remember when somebody first told me this, um, it, it was kind of like enlightening. I was like, oh, dang, it made me understand the, the Bible as a whole a lot better, and so I think I'd like to share it with you all today. Um, when Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead, naturally, people started to lean in a little bit more and pay a whole lot more attention to whatever it was that Jesus had to say, because as it turns out, if you predict your own death and you predict your own resurrection, and then it actually happens, people are going to pay a whole lot more attention to those things that you have to say. Now, we fast forward a couple hundred years, and we have the invention of the printing press, right? And at that point, texts and books and all these things that were previously only available to certain people become available to the public. And one of those books that was really, really interesting to people that a lot of Gentiles in particular, non-Jews, wanted to get their hands on were the Jewish scriptures. They wanted to look at the Jewish Bible, this thing that they had heard so much about but previously didn't have any access to it whatsoever because they weren't Jews. And so they started opening this book, the, the, the Jewish scriptures. And keep in mind, the Jewish scriptures in our Old Testament are the exact same thing. I remember when somebody told me that, I was like, that can't be right. But if you left right now and you went to a synagogue, you went to a Jewish synagogue and you opened up their, their Hebrew Bible, you would find the exact same thing, obviously not in Hebrew, you'd find the, the exact same thing that we have in our Old Testament, which is curious, right? Why are the Jewish scriptures are part of our Christian Bible? And they're a part of our Bible because Gentiles, these non-Jews, finally got their hands on the Jewish scriptures and they were opening it up and they kept having these aha moments where they would go, what the heck? How did we miss this? And then they'd read a little bit more and they'd put it down and they're like, this is so clearly talking about Jesus. All of this is pointing to Jesus. We, we, we don't understand how anybody could possibly read this and not think that it is explicitly talking about Jesus. And so the Old Testament is a part uh, of what we now refer to as our Bible because these people were picking up this text going, this is only provides further evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said that he was. Now, in that Old Testament, one of these individuals that we can read a good amount about is this individual named uh, Elijah. Now, uh, Elijah is this guy that, that there's a lot of text written about him, and, and my guess is, is that if I ask this morning, particularly those of you that grew up going to church, hey, have you ever heard of Elijah before? Uh, I, I would guess that most of the hands would go up in this room. However, if I told you to keep your hands up and then I jumped off stage and put a microphone in your face and tell, 
asked you, hey, tell me everything that you know about Elijah, I would bet that I would get back a bunch of Christian-y, churchy answers. You'd say things like, uh, he was in the Bible, and uh, he loved God, and maybe he was a prophet. And while none of that is necessarily untrue, Uh, It's maybe cutting the life of Elijah just a little bit short. And uh, as we're going to see over the next three weeks, the life of Elijah can teach and challenge every single one of us in some very significant ways, regardless, honestly, if you are a Jesus follower or not. In fact, I would go so far as to say this, that Elijah is one of the greatest men of God to have ever walked the earth. I truly believe that. You would be hard-pressed to find another individual that was as obedient, that was as willing to drop anything and do whatever God asked him to do as this guy named Elijah. Now, when I think of other great men of God in the history of the world, another individual that I actually think about uh, is myself when I was in high school. That's, that's a joke. Uh, for any of you that, that don't know, I, I had a, a bit of a rough past in high school. I, I made some pretty terrible, terrible decisions Uh, We won't get into all of them, but one of the things that I really liked to do in high school was drink. And uh, I don't tell you this, like, this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm just being vulnerable here. Um, Me and my buddies would do anything to to get our hands on alcohol. In fact, this is so embarrassing, but my parents, I was drinking so much that my sophomore year of high school, they bought a breathalyzer for me. I'd come home from school on like a Tuesday afternoon, and they'd be like blowing this. I'm like, are you serious? And they're like, yeah, we're serious, and I would fail. Um, And one of the things, obviously, not being 21, that I would do in an effort to try to get alcohol, is me and my friends would do this thing that we call garage hopping. Now, I hope this isn't a trend anymore. We didn't invent this thing, but there's probably teenagers out there that are still doing it. And if you're a teenager, maybe just plug your ears real quick. Uh, In order to get alcohol, what we would do is we'd drive around on like Friday and Saturday nights, and we'd intentionally be in neighborhoods looking for people uh, that had left their garages open after dark. And then we would drive a little bit past those garages and park, and then we'd see who kind of drew the short straw. And one of us would get out and try to, as casually as we could, meander into the stranger's garage and just take any alcohol that we might have found in their garage, and then we'd run back to the car, and, and we thought that was okay. Now, I look back at that, and I just think, what was wrong with me? Like, like... <laughs> To try to get myself to do something that dumb now, I mean, it would be impossible. You'd have a better, you'd just be like, okay, you have to do this, you're going to get killed. I'm like, all right, just kill me, because there ain't no way I'm doing something like that. I don't know what was wrong with me in high school, but we thought that this was a good idea. Now, I tell you that because some of you, believe it or not, there are people in here that hear that, and whether you admit to it or not, you can actually relate to that. You're like, yep, I did some pretty dumb things in my youth. Others of you, you're sitting here and you're like, no, we actually can't relate to that at all. What is wrong with you? But regardless, regardless, all of us at certain points in our life, and maybe this describes you right now, not the whole garage hopping thing, but maybe this describes you right now. You are at a point in your life right now, like I was when I was in high school, where you don't think that you need God. I just didn't think that I needed God. Or take it a step further, and this might very well describe you right now. I actually thought that following God was about following rules and following regulations, and following certain laws, and that if I followed God, it would actually restrict my life, that it would make my life far more complicated. We don't think that we need God, and we actually think that God will keep us from experiencing life to the fullest. Now, for me, obviously, the story doesn't end there. I've since stopped wandering into neighbors' garages and stealing their belongings. Um, And eventually, I went off to college, and, and, and this was a big moment for me in my life. And finally, for the first time in my life, I had to make this whole faith thing my own. No longer did I have my parents around forcing this stuff down my throat. It was up to me to decide, okay, am I going to walk away from this or is this going to be something that I really want to be a part of my life? Unfortunately for me, I started to lean in and I said, okay, I'm no longer just going to regurgitate this stuff that my parents have been telling me, that the church has been telling me. I'm going to start investigating this stuff for myself. And I started reading the Bible. 
And I started actually spending time with God, like alone time with God. And at first it just felt like I was kind of just like talking to myself, but eventually it felt like more like a conversation. And I, I started to get to know God. I felt like a little better. And as I started to understand God, and as I started to lean in and go, okay, God, like what is it you're trying to teach me? And as I started to understand just how much God loves me, just like he loves every single one of you that are sitting here today. After I started to wrap my head around the fact that God desires a relationship with me so badly, just like he does with all of you, that, that he went as so far as to send his one and his only son to, to die for us. And I'm like, man, who, who else has that kind of love? And, and so as I started to kind of wrap my head all, uh, around all that, I started to just have this, this, this feeling, and I couldn't shade it. I started to feel so unworthy before God. Like there's no way that I, I could be good enough for, for him. Our embarrassing past and our foolish mistakes and our sinful nature, it can cause us to feel so dirty before God. But the reality is, is that is not God's intent for any of us. We all absolutely need God, and I hope that every single one of you get to that realization at a certain point in your life. We all absolutely need him, but the last thing that he wants is our feelings of inadequacy and our shame and our embarrassment to, keep, to, to, for, to allow us to, for that to be the thing that keeps us from having a true and a vibrant and a real relationship with him. And we'll see this morning through the life of Elijah how God can use those difficult, those painful, even those embarrassing moments of our lives to actually lead us into a more intimate relationship with him that would have otherwise not been possible to find. So please allow me to, to pray for you, pray for me, and uh, we'll continue jumping in here. Father, I just uh, I say thank you so much to every single person that decided to show up here today, probably a little bit more tired than normal. Uh, but regardless of that, Father, I, I just ask that you really would do something special in this room today, that regardless of why we're here, if we wanted to show up, or if somebody bribed us into coming, or if somebody basically forced us to come, that, that we at least be open to whatever it is that, that you might want to teach us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, throughout this series, we're going to be jumping into some specific text, uh, specifically in, in the, the book of 1 Kings, which is a book that we find in the Old Testament in the first half of the Bible. And I want to invite you, as always, we'll put the scripture on the screens, but I also want to invite you that if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love it if maybe you would start like getting into this stuff during the week, not just here on Sunday mornings. And so in the back, uh, there is a table that has Bibles on them. Those aren't like, like a nice little display that we came up with. We want you to take those. Nothing would make us happier than if every week those Bibles were just not there. Now, if you're taking them and like going and selling them on eBay, don't do that. But if you don't have a Bible, definitely take one of those Bibles back there. Another thing you can do is download the Bible app. Uh, we think this is the best one. It's the U version. It's one of the most downloaded apps uh, in the history of apps. It's super, super easy to use. Uh, if you don't have that on your phone, I would really, really re recommend downloading it. Now, if you don't have a smartphone, you're not going to be able to, but that's only the beginning of your problem, so that's okay. Um, now, I want to paint a little bit of a picture here at the time in which uh, Elijah kind of stepped foot on earth. Uh, he lived in ancient Israel. The first time that we start reading about him, it's about 875 BC, so about 875 years before uh, Jesus ever stepped foot on earth. Here we have the life of Elijah. And at the point when he kind of steps onto the earth, Israel has just experienced 19 consecutive evil kings. Not poor leadership, not, 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 not just inept leadership, but 19 consecutive evil, evil kings. It would have spanned a time frame of about 200 
hundred years. Think about that. Some of you aren't terribly satisfied with our current commander-in-chief. You think that just four years is a little bit too long. You wish it was like four months. I assure you, it could be worse. Two hundred years of not, again, incompetent leadership, but sheer evil, incredibly evil, evil leadership. In fact, right when we begin to read about Elijah, the evilest king in the history of the world, and that's not an exaggeration, literally, the evilest king in the history of the world at that point, is elected king, this guy by the name of Ahab. In fact, it says right here in 1 Kings chapter 16, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So like I said, I'm not exaggerating. Literally, the evilest guy. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which is the king before him, which is also thought of to be really evil, but he was way worse. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Baal would be this false god that was incredibly popular in ancient Israel. Um, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, than did all the kings of Israel before him. He was an awful, 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 awful human being. And not only was he just a terrible guy, he actively took steps to lead other people away from God. He'd force people to do things that, that, that would cause them in turn to sin. He, he would uh, do these, these terrible things where he would ask people to sacrifice their children to these gods. He would bring prostitutes into the temple and have people commit sexual acts with them and, and in turn call it worship. He would do far more unspeakable things that frankly I'm not really comfortable sharing here on a Sunday morning. He was really, 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 really terrible. And it's in this incredibly dark time in the history of Israel that God finally says enough. And what's so interesting is he doesn't raise up an army. He doesn't even raise up a group of people. He selects one individual, Elijah. And we see that time and time again, throughout scripture, throughout history, even in present day, this is a common move for God to take. The selecting of one person, one man, one woman, one individual, to take a stand for him, to take a stand for what is right, to begin a movement. God will use one teenage girl in a school to take a stand for sexual purity. He'll take one business professional to take a stand for integrity in a company that lacks it. He'll use one mom to take a stand against gossip. He'll use one politician to take a stand for what is right rather than what has become acceptable. God might be very well calling you right now in your present circumstances to take a stand for what is right, to take a stand for him. God selects Elijah, and what we see here in the first of Kings is, is what I like to call the making of a man of God. And interestingly enough, and this is so crazy, this is something that is offered to every single person in this room. God desires to make you a man. He desires to make you a woman of God. And we'll see in Elijah's life, and it's certainly true in our lives as well, extraordinary things happen when we stop depending on ourselves and we start depending on God. Incredible things begin to happen in our lives when we stop relying on us and we start relying on God. Now, the name of Elijah itself has a pretty rich meaning to it. 
You can see how it's kind of broken down there. El is short for Elohim, which is the Hebrew term for God as we know it. I is obviously the personal pronoun for my or mine. And the Ja is short for Jehovah. Uh, and so when you put all those things together, quite literally, it means my God is Jehovah or the Lord is my God. My God is Jehovah, the Lord is my God. So immediately, when God raises up this prophet, when he raises up and he selects this one individual to stare down literally the evilest king that has ever walked the earth, by his very name alone, he is declaring the Lord God is the one and only true God. Ahab, all of these other gods that you have set up, they, they are false, they are not real. They're the only promise on what the real God can deliver. They aren't real gods. It continues in 1 Kings 17.1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite, and that's important to note here, because this is the very first time that we're introduced to Elijah, and he's identified by where he is from. It would be like me saying, my name is Shay the Michigander. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, which isn't an accident that that's in there. He's making it very, very clear to Ahab, hey, these other gods that you set up, I don't believe in them. I serve the real God. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, we can't totally appreciate how big of a deal this is right here. Again, he is staring down the evilest king that has ever lived. I mean, imagine how scary that would be with the reputation this guy had. And he's telling him, hey, there isn't going to be any more rain. No more dew, no more moisture falling from the sky. It is gone. We are not going to have any more of this. And back then, and in this agriculturally driven society, with no rain or no water, I mean, the entire society would have essentially shut down. Nothing would have happened. It would be like you going to the gas station and you couldn't get gas and going to the bank and you can't pull your money out. You get home and you flip your light switch on and nothing happens. You turn your faucet and no water comes out. I mean, society which would have essentially shut down. And here is Elijah staring down this unspeakably horrible, terrible guy telling him, hey, guess what? There ain't going to be any more rain unless I say so. Now, how do you suppose that Ahab was going to respond to that? He's going to be like, hey, thanks for letting me know. No, not at all. In fact, God gives him a heads up. He's like, by the way, you're going to go and deliver this message to this guy that you ain't going to like it very much. And uh, upon doing so, you're going to want to just kind of turn away and run and hide. And he's like, are, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, I'm saying just that. So go tell him this message and then run away and hide because after you tell him this, he's going to try to kill you. It's like, okay, that sounds wonderful. But Elijah actually does it. He goes and he hides. And it's in this season of hiding that we see God begin to make this man of God. He isolates him so he can do much in him and in turn, God will then be able to accomplish much more through him. God wants to do much in you so he can do much through you. And he will never switch that order around. Before we can ever be used, we must first submit to him and allow God to work in us, allow God to prepare us. And it's in this season of Elijah's life that we're essentially three stages that Elijah has taken through. Stage number one is this, isolated pain. It continues in 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm gonna throw up the next slide there. Next slide, perfect. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. Now, this word Kareth in Hebrew, it has a pretty rich meaning to it. Go ahead. It means to be cut off or cut down. God's saying, hey, literally, I'm going to take you, Elijah, through this season of breaking. I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to teach you to be totally dependent on me, not dependent on me and your job, 
Not dependent on me and your family, not dependent on me and your friends, not dependent on me and your income, not dependent on me and then a bunch of your stuff. No, dependent on me and me alone. I am going to humble you privately before I use you publicly. Many of us have experienced this before. We've been, or maybe you feel like right now in your present circumstances, you are in the Kareth Ravine and you're asking God, where in the heck are you? Why, why have you seemed like, 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 it's just like you walked away. Where did you go? But the truth is, is that God is absolutely present. And if you'll allow him to, he desires to do a deep work in you. Very close friends of my wife and I's, and in fact, friends of a lot of you that are sitting here today, uh, and ironically, they're not here today, are David and Mallory Reed, who uh, have been really close friends of my wife and I since college and uh, so supportive of us, even as we, you know, ventured out and, you know, started this new church. And uh, they very much, over the last couple of years, ha- had been in the Kareth Ravine. I'm going to kind of give you the 5,000-foot snapshot, but I- I've never known a young couple to go through so much and have so much heartbreak. Uh, several years ago, David's father, uh, completely out of nowhere, uh, passed away. He had an enlarged heart that they didn't know about. He had just ran a marathon. Um, it was his best friend, his spiritual mentor, a guy that he talked to literally every day and, and out of nowhere, literally just drops dead. He had just had a physical. Everything was seemingly going fine. I mean, it took them by so much surprise. Uh, not too long after that, not as uh, suddenly, he lost his grandfather. Shortly after that, his wife, Mallory, uh, lost her father. Uh, not as unexpected. Uh, he was, uh, had a bout with cancer, but they still definitely thought that he'd have more time to live. Not too long after that, David's at work, and out of nowhere, he has a seizure. Never had any type of those symptoms whatsoever. Literally came out of nowhere. An incredibly healthy guy, if you know him. He has a seizure. They take him to the hospital. They do all the tests, run all the tests, and they find out that he has a mass on his brain. They do surgery, and sure enough, that's cancer as well. And they find out that he has brain cancer. In the middle of all of that, they miscarried their third child. And I just remember just a couple of different nights just like weeping for my friend, just feeling so bad for everything that they were going through. And one of those nights, uh, it was after his dad passed away, I, I shot him a text and just said, hey man, I, I'm praying for you. If there's anything that Andrea and I could do for you, just please let us know. And I'll never forget the response that he sent to me. I expected him to reply with something like, man, this has been so hard. I don't know what the heck God is doing to our family, but this was his response. And he gave me permission to share this. He wrote, through all of this, I have renewed spirit and desire to serve the Lord. These awful tragedies have brought our whole family closer together and towards God. I'm starting to have a real peace that can only come from Christ. David and Mallory, I mean, man, my goodness, they have been living in the Kareth Ravine. And I have no idea. I don't think there's a reasonable explanation as to why all of these things have seemingly hit them at once. But we have to understand that God desires to do great things in us, in those low, in those difficult times of our lives, to move us to total dependence on him. That honestly, if we're honest, and we don't like going through those times, but if everything that was, go- was going well, it-, it wouldn't lead us to that point. It often takes going through the Kareth Ravine where God will cut and he'll humble and he'll teach that isolated pain. And some of you are there right now and I promise if you allow God to, he will use that time in the Kareth Ravine to move us to total dependence on him that would have been, again, been otherwise impossible to find. So if you find yourself in that Kareth Ravine and I know that this is so much easier said than done, be encouraged. The more that God breaks you, 
the more he is preparing you, just as he did with Elijah. Stage number two is this, total dependence. We continue in 1 Kings chapter 17. It says, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. We do this when we read scripture a lot, right? Like, I just read that to you guys, and you're all like, okay, cool. Do we understand what's going on here? I mean, God literally led him out into the wilderness. It's in the middle of a famine, in the middle of a drought, but miraculously, there just happens to be this water flowing up from the earth. He has plenty to drink. But God didn't say, okay, I'm just going to give you something to drink and I'll give you like some nuts and berries. No, no, no. God's heavenly catering service is delivering him meals two times a day. And he's not getting like the things that birds normally eat. Again, like nuts and berries and fruits and stuff. He's getting steaks and bread. And we all sit there and we're like, okay, that sounds cool. I mean, that's unbelievable. And this isn't like some make-believe guy. This stuff actually happened. He leads him out into the middle of nowhere to hide from King Ahab, and he has plenty of food to eat, and he has plenty of water to drink. God won't always provide in those moments, and he's going to tell us, okay, here's what the long-term picture is. He didn't tell Elijah what was going on long-term. He didn't even provide him food for weeks, not even days, but one meal at a time. God won't always give us that long-term plan. In fact, he rarely does. We rarely know what the light is at the end of the tunnel. When we say yes to certain things, sometimes we have no idea where it's all leading. He gives us just enough for the day. He gives us just enough for the moment. And then he says, come on, come on, trust me. Do you actually trust me? He won't always bring us more than we need, but he will always provide us with exactly what we need. When we trust him, when we take those steps of obedience, he always comes through. So he broke. He cut down Elijah. And now he's leading him to total dependence on him. He's quite literally showing Elijah, I am faithful. I can be counted on. Elijah, you can trust me. Many of us have learned that exact same lesson. We lose something. We lose someone that's very close to us. And you have nothing else to trust on. You have no one else to trust on but God. And like Elijah, we learn that when everything else fades away, God will forever and always be faithful to us. When my wife and I were, were, were starting this church and leading up like a couple of months before, um, I, I finally had to start kind of weeding through like the fine details of the budget. We had a budget, but so much of it is just wet cement because you look at it and it's a humbling position to be on when you are re literally relying on the generosity of other people to float this thing, right? Like there's nothing else in the world that really does that, right? Like except charitable organizations and churches. You're like, we hope it works out and we hope that all of you just give money into a bucket, right? It's kind of a weird scenario to be in. And so when we're planning all this and you're looking at it and you're like, okay, like, can we afford this? Not really. We can't really afford anything. But one of these convictions that God had really laid on my heart was to partner with this organization called Kingdom Investment Nepal. And some of you might not know this, but uh, we as a church, we fully fund, and you guys fund it. If you give here, you fund this. We fully fund a border station in Nepal, which sole purpose is to fight human trafficking, specifically to fight sex trafficking. And it's not that cheap. Now, in American terms, it sounds pretty cheap, but it's like $24,000 a year to fully fund this thing. But literally, eight to 10 women a day at that one border station that we support, that we fully fund, eight to 10 women a day are saved from being trafficked. 
saved from a life where their entire young life, they would be handed from man to man to man. But I literally had people that told me, Christian people that were like, you shouldn't do that. Year one, you got to focus on keeping this thing afloat. You got to worry about you. You can't be worrying about other organizations yet. I mean, you do those things in year three and four as you get bigger. And I kind of heard that advice. I'm like, okay, I understand where they're kind of coming from, but I couldn't shake it. And every single time I would go to delete it on the line item, God was like, uh, 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 trust me, trust me. And so I remember when I was finally like, okay, we're going to do this. And we wrote the first check and we said, okay, God, we, we don't know how you're going to do this, but we're going to trust you to come through. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Orlando doing some fundraising for Grumla, uh, because we're still quite far from being self-sufficient. And uh, we got a partnership with an organization that I have literally, at that point, maybe spent a combined three hours talking to for three times the amount of money than that border station. And I just look at that and I go, holy smokes, God. When we are obedient, when we really trust you, when we lean into those promptings, you always come through. You never let us down. This church, and I'll brag on you guys, and I brag on you all all the time, has bucked every trend financially. It's crazy how generous all of you have been to this church. It makes no sense when you look at every statistic that goes along with church planning. So thank you. Thank you for being generous so that literally lives can be impacted. Think about that. You know, I, I, like every time I think about that, it blows my mind. Literally today, eight to ten women, young girls, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, ten-year-old girls are being saved from being trafficked because of your generosity. When we lean into those promptings, God always absolutely comes through. He always provides. He's always faithful. When everything else fades away, he will always deliver. Stage number three is this unconditional obedience. We continue in 1 Kings chapter 17. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And again, we can read this and think, okay, that's no big deal. But try to put yourself in Elijah's shoes. Okay, God first says, go stand up to the evilest king that's ever lived and tell him there ain't gonna be any more rain. Okay, God, this seems like a leap, but I'll do it. All right, after you tell him, run away because he's going to try to kill you. Wonderful. So he does that. He gets out into the wilderness and God actually comes through, right? Like he's getting food and he has plenty to drink. Things are seemingly okay. But as soon as he kind of gets comfortable, God pulls the plug of the entire operation and says, okay, now I want you to travel to this place that you have never been to before by foot, right? He doesn't have a car, doesn't have a Segway or anything. He's walking. He says, go and travel to this place you've never been, and there you're going to find a widow. But don't worry, it's the middle of a drought, it's the middle of a famine, that woman's going to have plenty to feed you with. And he's going, did I do something wrong? God, am I screwing up? Why do you keep making this so difficult? I mean, things are going good here. I kind of like these stakes that you're bringing me. Like, why do I have to go again? But God says, no, 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 go. And so he gets up and he leaves. He's going to very quickly learn that the God that can so quickly give to us can also take away. And this is such a valuable lesson that we learn here. God will sometimes cause the brook to dry up to give us the courage to leave where we are, to get us out of what might feel comfortable so that we will go where we're ultimately supposed to be. And some of you, you're figuring it out right now. You're going, 
oh crud, I got a brook drying up in my life. I used to be able to rely on my job and I can't really rely on my job anymore. I used to have this nice and cushy 401k and now it's looking more like a 201k. I used to be able to rely on that income and I can't rely on that income. I used to have all these friends and where the heck did they go? I, I had such a good thing going with this guy or going with this girl. When did things turn south? I used to feel so close to God, but now I feel so distant. There's a brook that's drying up in your life. There's this popular saying among Christians, if you grew up going to church and stuff, I guarantee that you've heard this before. I'm going to put that next slide up. God will guide by what he provides. I used to have all these old people tell me that, you know, like especially in college. God will guide by what he provides. And I don't necessarily believe that's untrue, but what I have found to be far more true in my life and probably true in your life as well is that God will provide by what he doesn't provide. Is it possible that God is drying up a brook in your life to try and get you to take a step of total obedience? And this is exactly what happens with Elijah. Literally, the brook dries up. And we don't have time to go through this verse by verse, but, but he leaves the brook, the water's gone. He's like, okay, really, what choice do I have, God? I mean, you want me to be obedient, but there's no more water here and your birds ain't coming through anymore. So yeah, I guess I'll go wherever you're telling me to go. And he goes by foot, about a hundred mile journey. And he gets to this place that he's never been to before. And sure enough, he finds the widow. And he goes up to her and he's all excited. He's like, you're not going to believe this. Some crazy things have been going down in my life. But God told me that I was going to specifically find you. And guess what? You're supposed to feed me. And she's not as excited about it. She looks at him and she's almost like, are you out of your mind? And she actually gets quite irritated. She's like, give you food? Have you not heard that there's a famine? And I'm a widow. I don't exactly have food to shell out right now. No, I'm not giving you any food. In fact, my son and I are down to our last meal, after which point we fully expect to starve to death. But because of everything that Elijah had been through, he doesn't take no for an answer. And he looks at her and he speaks life into the situation. He's like, no, 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 no. God has been coming through every single step of the way. I just traveled 100 miles on foot. God told me that I was going to find you, and now I found you. He ain't going to stop providing now. Now get inside and bake me some biscuits. And she does. And wouldn't you know it, the food doesn't run out. The one jar of oil and the little flour that she had left, it seems to just keep miraculously replenishing itself. For days, for weeks, and even for months, God again provides because of Elijah's unconditional obedience. But after a little bit of time has passed, after months spending time with this woman and the food just keep replenishing itself, uh, things start to turn south. In fact, this widow's son gets really, really sick and eventually dies. And she is very quick to forget how God has been providing. And she looks at Elijah and she's like, you are the reason. She blames him for it. You're the reason. You're a curse. Get out of my life. But again, Elijah, because of all that God has been doing, because of how God has been molding him, he doesn't freak out. And he does something that, to our knowledge, had never happened in the history of the world. He asks God to raise a person back to life. And perhaps even more significant, he actually believes that God's going to do it. And he does. This kid is raised back to life, but this only happens because first God took him through the Kareth Ravine, because he molded him, because he cut him, because he humbled him. God took him to a season of total dependence where if he didn't come through, Elijah was going to die. 
Then God dried up that brook in his life so he would leave what was comfortable and he'd take him where he wanted him to go so that he could perform a miracle and raise a kid back to life. God used the horrible, the difficult, those trying times in his life to mold him into a man of God. Extraordinary things happen when we stop depending on ourselves and we start depending on God. What might God be doing in your life right now? As painful as it maybe seems, as unfair as it seems, and I get that, it probably is unfair. What is he doing? What is he doing in you so that he can do even more through you? At the beginning of the story, Elijah was known as Elijah the Tishbite. He was identified by where he was from. But by the end, it says here in verse 4 of chapter 17, I'm going to throw it up that slide. It says, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. He's no longer Elijah the Tishbite. He is Elijah the man of God. God might very well allow you to go through the Kareth Ravine so that other two, others too will look at your life and say, that is a man. That is a woman of God. Just like Elijah, pain in our lives can lead us to total dependence on God and a more intimate relationship with him. Again, I know it's so much easier said than done. But he desires to use those low times in our lives, those painful, those unfair moments to lead us to total dependence on him. Extraordinary things happen when we stop depending on ourselves and we start depending on God. Let me pray for us.